urban leaders. I've been scouring this planet of ours uh, during the great lockdown era and uh, to find the greatest uh, thought leaders. And today is no exception. We have with us Henry Dodds. Hello, Henry. Uh, Jonathan, hello. Nice to be talking to you. Give us a bit of a uh, of a elevator pitch. Former army officer, intelligence analyst, editor, uh, founding editor of the flagship magazine Jane's Intelligence Review, and a veteran of over twenty years in the financial services sector in the city, but also more recently running a little financial services boutique in Luxembourg. So what I bring to this particular conversation is I know how to look at data, I know how to analyze it, I make a reasonably good fist of going, well, okay, if this has happened, then here are some of the conclusions we could be looking at. And also I bring the money side to all of this because there's no point in looking at what's going on at the moment without understanding the money as well as the health. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. We went into lockdown, uh, and many will argue that it was too late, but we went into lockdown in the latter part of March, and the priority then was on saving lives. So all the government messaging, all the government policy was about saving lives, mm-hmm. um, and really no attention given to the cost. Now, if you look at the cost to the UK government, which we're all going to have to pick up now and in the future, mm. at the moment it looks like about £300 billion. To put that in proportion, if you assume the worst case for deaths from the virus was half a million people, then we are paying £600,000 for every life saved. Now, it is the job of government to look after the people. So is it a price worth paying? Absolutely. But what a cost for lack of preparedness. Absolutely. And only this morning, um, the Chinese press they published a criticism of the United Kingdom government saying that they were too slow to act and basically they've said they made a mess of it. But what Mm. China is doing now is diverting attention from itself um, Mm. and and pointing the finger at anyone who is an easy target. And the easy targets are countries with relatively high rates of infections and relatively high rates of death. We don't actually know what the number of deaths were in China, because we only have the the Chinese government view on that. Uh, And I don't think we can trust the numbers coming out of China. Some people have said that it's the biggest failure uh, of the state for a generation. What do you think about that? We knew this was coming. The UK knew it was coming. Developed countries knew it was coming. The World Health Organization knew it was coming. And by it, I mean a pandemic. Pandemic influenza was was always identified as the biggest risk to the UK. It wasn't until 2010 that pandemic disease took over as the biggest risk. And then we flipped it back to pandemic influenza. Uh, And and if you look at the latest uh, risk register, 2017, pandemic disease has sort of rather been promoted down, which is absolutely nuts. So the first thing is that the UK had this sort of Maginot line thinking where they were building defences against the wrong thing. We were focusing on too narrow a thing. Um, And that's nuts, given the experience that in 1996, bird flu arrived, H5N1. In 2003, we had the first coronavirus, SARS. 2009, we had swine flu. 2012, we have MERS, another coronavirus. Um, 
But all of these things lulled us into a full sense of security because they all went away. And, and so I think that the state failure is preparing for the wrong thing. That comes from a groupthink and a lack of imagination. Mm. Um, and really not thinking through the implications of what it was that we needed to protect the UK against. And I come back to what I said earlier, which is the first job of a government is to keep its people safe. And although this government has so far saved lives, we'll see where we are in a couple of years' time, um, the cost is massive and the cost we will have to bear for generations. Uh, this week, um, with London Transport, they needed an immediate cash injection, but <laughs> the price that London Transport had to pay was that there would be more government representatives actually on the board of London Transport. So do you think that this is where we're going now? Well, who pays the piper calls the tune, uh, and there are going to be a lot of organisations who are short of money, so anyone who can provide the money then starts to dictate. Um, I think what we're going to see coming through is there will be there will be lots of reaction and commentary and lobbying from people who are going, well, the state has failed. Um, Globalisation, well, that's a bad thing because we became dependent on China for, for PPE and we didn't get it when we needed. We can't trust even our trading partners to deliver what we need. So, so let's bring everything on shore so there'll be a rollback of globalisation. Once it's basically over, do you think that actually rather than this thing about you know the left, people are going to become more towards the right. And so globalization, in terms of buying things from China or from America or wherever it might be, people are going to start wanting to have made in the USA, made in UK. In other words, keep it to our own. If people want to consume at a similar level to the way they've consumed in the past, there isn't the productive capacity in the UK as it currently stands. But what this may trigger is a huge wave of innovation and a rise in productivity. You know, so that, that's the hope. Um, and that may mean more robotics. It may mean more artificial intelligence. It may mean you know, being, being, being more Swiss about the, the way we work, which is being very, very smart, understanding what our strategic industries are and concentrating on them and defending them against foreign takeover. Um, but that's not the sort of country we've been in the past, which is essentially open to everyone. This is Thought and Leaders. I think there will be a greater understanding of where national interest lies. What I don't know is how this then governs the future relationship with the European Union, and indeed, um, how that national interest plays out within the EU nation states and whether we see some kind of fragmentation of the EU in the future as a result of this desire to go, no, no, we have to look after our own people first and our own people will not be European citizens. It will be the citizens of Germany, the Netherlands, France, Spain, Italy, wherever. And do you think that putting on your military experience that this idea of the rise in nationalism could lead to some, well, not some pretty good places, basically? Um, interests will align. So I think the UK and the US will naturally become closer along with Australia, Canada, possibly New Zealand. Um, but, but China, it's tainted with all of this in terms of the view of the world. And so it's trying to, trying to cleanse its reputation. We're not um, doing a good job by throwing the, the, the mud back over the other side of the fence. Mud always sticks. 
if their core audience is, let's say, Africa, if Africa then aligns with China um, and not with the West, that is not in the West's interests. Um, but and, and with the rollback of globalization, then, then those, those economic factors to keep everything o- open go away, and so we all become closed. So yes, we do become more nationalistic. I think that's the risk in the future. Uh, let's hope we don't do anything stupid with that nationalism. The problem with pulling everything back into your national borders is you then get some undesirable consequences. Uh, I spent three months traveling around China in 1992, and that was just at the start of the economic awakening of China. And what was very apparent then was coming from the relatively clean environment of the UK to China, the skies were the most peculiar purple, yellow, gray color with all the pollution that we had very happily exported to China. Now, the question is, are we ready to bring some of that pollution back on shore or are we able to manage that pollution in some way? Because what we've all seen from the last six weeks is we've seen beautiful, clear blue skies. And we're going to miss that when the skies become hazy again with with vehicle pollution, with all of the aircraft haze that we get. Um, Now, whether whether we're prepared to bring more pollution back on shore, I'm not sure. Seven in 10 high-income Americans are able to work from home, uh, and that compares to just four uh, in 10 of low-income uh, counterparts. So do you think that this is going to increase the social divide? I don't know, because by people working from home, you are, re- you are reducing the concentration of people within cities, reducing the concentration of people. But that's around. okay for middle class. But mm-hmm. what about the working class people? It's not really fair on them, is it? Um, well, what it speaks to then is a push for more automation. That's more people out of work. No. Uh, it means an upheaval. What it also means is a reorganization of, of capital, both financial capital and human capital. And we know that we don't have enough human capital in this country, simply by, by the fact that we have to import it. We have to import it to pick our strawberries and our raspberries and our courgettes. And- but, but arguably, Henry, with the amount of people who are having to now claim unemployment or universal credit or whatever you want to call it, surely we've got more than enough people that the government could say, you know what, we'll pick our own strawberries. The, 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 the clear evidence from the farming community is that, that the immediate problem they have is not so much willing hands, uh, but it's willing hands who will stay the course and willing hands who they don't have to train up how to use the machinery, the health and safety aspects. They want people they can bring in, put on their farm, who will work for the known, known period of time and will then um, not be on the payroll for the, for the fallow months of the year. In terms of the lower middle classes and so forth, they're working in this new gig economy, which is, you know, so what? So they don't have to employ them. No one's, look, so many people are going from being furloughed to companies saying, well, let's reduce our, our um, recruitment footprint as well. So what you need is you need an environment where new industries can arise and where you can get more job creation. What you, what you mustn't do is you mustn't go, we're going to tax companies more because they're an easy take. We have to increase employment protection because clearly people need to be, be protected. We actually need to turn this thing on the head and go, how do we get the most vibrant economy that will allow people who are, who are displaced from one industry to, to take their willingness to work somewhere else? Let's talk about how do people, generally speak, speaking, look at the idea of recognizing and preparing for a crisis? 
between 2002 and 2005, I had a very useful gap where I worked as a special advisor in Parliament, including in 2005, sitting on some of the early pandemic preparations and also disaster preparations. So I have a little bit of an insight into where all of this came from. Put yourself back in in those days. Did you recognise this crisis? So um, I went from from being a parliamentary advisor in 2005, uh, meeting with the head of the Civil Contingency Secretariat, uh, Sir Bruce Mann, and with the head of the Health Protection Agency, uh, Professor Pat Troop, and the Health Protection Agency then turned into Public Health England. Um, and, I, and I sat in a room with them in, in Portcullis House, and um, Bruce Mann, head of the Civil Contingency Secretariat, laid out all of his risks. And, and as well as pandemics, it was the risk of, of um, severe weather events. So, you know, one scenario was, was what happens if a meter of snow falls on London overnight? Um, how do you cope with that? Um, but it was very clear then that the major threat was seen as pandemic influenza. When mm. I then went back into banking and, and joined a little firm called Lehman Brothers, you know, that was one risk I didn't see coming. Um, <laughs> Uh, but 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 we were very excited uh, within Lehman's about preparing for for um, bird flu, um, and I wrote a paper as part of the pandemic preparedness for Lehman Brothers, uh, and I said, you know, we'll have to work from home. Uh, there will be a significant GDP impact, but I didn't guess how big the GDP impact was going to be. And I said, look, we Lehman Brothers have to do more preparation on the economic impact of all of this. But of course, Lehman's went bust in two thousand and eight. Um, but every time within a bank from, from 2005 to 2015, um, when I left the bulge bracket firms, when we were doing our annual risk register, I had pandemics on that risk register as something that we had to prepare for. And what private firms do, which the government appears not to have done, is you look at the probability of risks, which the government did do, you then work out the cost of those risks if they arise, then prepare a relatively simple multiplication matrix and then you go okay this is the amount of capital we have to put aside to manage our risks because managing risk is not about making them go away it's just knowing how you manage them Uh, and what no government seems to have done with the possible exception of finland which was fully prepared for this um, is actually work out the cost of it all and what to do if the risk arose and that's what's been lacking. And that's why I call this the biggest failure of the state for a generation. There was the obsession with process. No parliamentarian asked the question, what is the economic impact of a pandemic? And that is, that is criminal and it speaks to a groupthink, which is deeply disturbing. And the other disturbing piece of the groupthink was right back in 2005, the planning assumption by the, by the experts was, If you get a pandemic, you can't do anything about it because once you know you've got it, it's already running. There was no consideration given to a lockdown. The average person touches their face three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, and each other. Beth! No, no, uh, go up to your room, honey. So we have a virus with no treatment protocol and no vaccine at this time. The people who should be imagining what happens don't. So it's almost as if you have to inject a bunch of creatives, a bunch of film writers into the cabinet office who will sit in one corner and go, well, that's very interesting. Here's the story that we can write you off the back of that. Now tell us why that story isn't plausible. Mm. And that challenge has been completely missing 
within the system of the state. And I don't blame Boris Johnson and this Conservative government for all of this because they inherited the book that had already been written. The story in recent weeks from the government's point of view has been rather confusing. I think think gotcha journalism has been a terrible curse. Uh, But you and I are both old enough to remember a a little war in the South Atlantic uh, over over the Falkland Islands. And the news flow there was beautifully controlled. So we only found out what was going on, uh, apart from one notable occasion when the the BBC uh, inadvertently leaked news of a forthcoming bombing raid. Um, We only knew it under the government timescales. Now it's immensely difficult. I don't think the government messaging has been fantastic. Um, But given that the Prime Minister got sick, went into intensive care, um, I don't think they've done, done, done terribly badly. And the challenge in all of this is we don't know fully what is going on. There are uh, reasonable, there's reasonable analysis about what the virus is, but there isn't full knowledge yet. There isn't full knowledge in the way that there will be in 12 months' time. And, and all governments have been trying to do the best they can in the circumstances. But, but you know, as I look around the world, I think there, there are essentially two groups. There are the squashers, um, countries like New Zealand, Taiwan, if, if we can mention the name without ups, upsetting the Chinese, yeah. uh, you know, Aus, Aus, Australia, um, Scandinavia, they're all the squashers. They will squash the virus very, very quickly. Um, Iceland, to me, is the, the exemplar of how to do this because having controlled it very quickly, which you can do in, more easily in a country of 300,000 people than a country of 60 million or, or even 300 million like the U.S., um, they're now talking about how, how they open up their border. From next month, you can go to Iceland and either opt to go into quarantine or take a test on arrival. So why has, why has the UK become a bit of a joke around the world in terms of flights still arriving, even now? What's going on here? As the incidence of the virus goes down in the UK, then the focus becomes not on accepting the fact that the virus is there, but controlling the transmission of the virus. If your groupthink is the virus is already running, we already have a pandemic, then there's no point in taking the the economic hit to stopping people coming in. Um, Perhaps by the time the government elects to to control people coming into this country, maybe we'll be able to go for the Iceland option of going either 14 days in quarantine or take this test. And then that will provide economic opportunities for people who can build test screening centers in airports where you can manage the flow of people through them because that will be a you know that's an economic opportunity i see at the time coming when 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 air travel actually becomes the the preserve of the rich um you know social distancing on planes and and you know limited throughput through airport um but there are ways of managing this i um recently did one of these uh, recorded one of these podcasts with a guy who um, advises the Cypriot government so I was speaking to him from uh, Nicosia he called the current generation in Cyprus the generation of the damned because not only have they come you know just about and I do mean just about come out of one economic crisis as they call it there locally they call it the haircut and now they're into this and as he says the generation of the damned he said that they rely so much on tourism and this idea of having planes which you know social distancing and all the rest of it 
he just had nowhere to turn at this point. Yes, and we I think we've all become very used in the last 20 years, those of us who have money, to doing basically whatever we want, going wherever we want, consuming whatever we want. Uh, I think those times are probably over. And tourism is an interesting one because tourism has brought employment and money into all kinds of parts of the world. It hasn't always been terribly good for those parts of the world, uh, and nor has the effect of the noise and pollution. You, you know, it's, 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 it's fantastic that you get, you get the vast tracts of Africa where wildlife roams freely. It's not fantastic if you've then built facilities that, that, that consume precious resources that the locals no longer have access to, like water, um, so tourists can have a shower every day. And then the money gets recycled back into the offshore company that's built, say, the exotic ranch experience in South Africa. Um, yeah. We're going to have to make some quite hard choices about what we do in the future. Um, and some of those will be, will be good for the environment. Whether they're good for people or not, very hard to say. So let's have a look now and let's do a, uh, a five to maximum 10 year plan. I think five is probably more reasonable. And let's talk, first of all, in your view, about where we're going in terms of the economic effects. The Chancellor has already said that the cost of the coronavirus is, is about £300 billion in extra borrowing. So to put that into, into proportion, that is um, twice the annual health budget, it's three times the education budget. It's six times the defence budget. It is an extra third of government spending in any given year. Government spending is round about $900 billion, $928 billion. It's 13% of the UK's GDP of £2 trillion a year. It's also twice what the UK government had been planning to, to, to borrow this year. So the net financing requirement for this year was about $156 billion. So that's now going to triple. So these are enormous numbers. Now, what's in the UK's favour is we don't re renege on our debt, we're politically stable, um, and people are queuing up so far to buy government bonds. So they, these are all things in our favour. But at some stage, that bill has to be paid. So this is, a, this is a drag on future generations. And then, you know, the debate, then the ideological debate we're going to see is between austerity, higher taxes, or grow the economy. Have we cursed the generation you know, that, that, that's going to have to bear all of this stuff? We won't be able to pay for universities, homes, and, and housing, and all the rest of it. Have we cursed them to become the generation of the damned as well? <laughs> We're talking about a serious cost here, and somebody's got to pay for it. Well, you know, a billion dollars here and a billion dollars there, and pretty soon you're talking real money, as, as, as someone <laughs> once said. Um, but, you know, it's, it's because we didn't like the idea of possibly killing half a million people and overwhelming our health service. So, so future generations are, are going to have to live with this. What this will drive, though, is um, more immigration. With, with a higher financial cost, we need more people to pay for it. We need to grow the tax base. So, it's so a bit I of a nuisance seeing that we're just coming out of the, uh, out of the EU. Um, well, and, and also as you look at the global shift in demographics and, and the reduction in the number of, of young people in, in, 
in Western Europe, in the UK in particular, you know, we're going to become like the Pied Piper of the world. We will be playing our whistle to attract every young person in the world to come to the UK, to contribute to the UK economy, to bring their talents mm. and their skill and their energy. Mm. On a five to 10 year time scale, there will be the geopolitical shifts. We'll know whether the European Union's survived. There are fault lines within, within the EU on an economic basis. Um, and Germany is, is clearly paranoid about hyperinflation and so is really, really worried about the effects of issuing more debt in an uncontrolled manner. Um, I think the EU has to survive because there are still people around who remember that the EU was founded to stop the horrors of two world wars in the 20th century. Uh, but, I, but I don't see there being uh, fiscal union in the way that we've got monetary union. Uh, I just think that will be too hard. Um, China, Ch things become difficult for China because firstly, we're not going to be buying as much Chinese stuff. In most of the stuff on my desk here, some, you know, I, I would say, you know, 90% of it says made in China. So mm. we haven't got the capacity to, to start making that sort of stuff ourselves. Um, no, but I, but I, but I bought a, a nice Bosch sander because I've been doing a bit DIY recently because I've got time on my hands like all of us. Um, and, and my Bosch sander was made not in China, as I thought, but in Hungary. So there is productive capacity around in, within, the, within the EU. Uh, and there's always Africa as well. And um, India. And, and India, uh, I, think in, I think the relationship with, it, with India is interesting. And a key year it, for the UK's relationship with India is 2022. And that is the 75th anniversary of the founding of the independence of India. And that is a time where if, if the UK is smart, they will address some of the long felt hurts about mm. British imperial rule in India, because India is a fantastic country um, they now know they're a fantastic country, and but there is a temptation within Indian nationalism to blame all current ills on past imperialism. The UK has to address that, and we have to look at things, and we have to find a way of building a warmer relationship with India than the way it is at the moment. India is 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 a tremendous resource, but but Africa is often written off in this sort of rather racist white mindset of of being the land of of famine and corruption, and it isn't. It's absolutely wrong to write off Africa because there is tremendous talent, there are some, there's good governance, um, there are good educational systems, there are good legal systems, so we should be looking to Africa and understanding the, the talent and the importance of Africa in, in, in the coming 20, 50 years. When this particular pandemic has blown through, we mustn't sit back on our laurels. We must get much, much better at identifying the risks when they come and, and knowing when we're in a crisis um, and, and doing the simple things that we could have done for this one, which is to have scaling plans. We didn't have approved designs for, for, for um, ventilator machines, so we had to go through that approval process. There were lots of preparatory things that we could have done so that when the event arises literally you pull them out of out, out, out of the electronic filing cabinet and get okay we know how to handle this one we, we we paid partners in industry to maintain the capability of building x y and z um and it will come at come at an annual cost but even if it costs 
five billion to have that preparation in place that's a lot less than the 300 billion we're paying now for this for this relatively benign virus we haven't talked about the growth in antibiotic resistance and how we should be looking at the use of antibiotics um, if anything is going to produce a killer bug then you know i'd be looking at antibiotic resistance pretty high up on the list but then there, then there are other events that are going to come along you know there is the impact of severe space weather if you get really severe space weather, then lots of things go down. I used to read Asterix the Gaul, and there was this king who, who always thought the sky was going to fall in his head. Are we going to become a bit paranoid here? We need to find a middle ground between the sky is falling of the sky is falling messaging of, of the climate activists and the complacency of some industrialists uh, and, and find the middle ground to, to know when we're in a crisis. I think pretty well everyone in the world accepts that the climate is changing. It's just in the past we haven't been prepared to do anything about it. This crisis, indeed any crisis, Henry, you know, you can look at it and you can be like that king in, in Asterix and say that the, the sky is falling on my head and what am I going to do and all that sort of idea. Or you can actually say every crisis is actually an opportunity to become a catalyst for change and that change can funnily enough be for the good. Absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things I've seen floated today, um, you know, we, and we've seen the tragedy of deaths in care homes, is mm. that care homes should be smaller. There should be more care homes, but smaller care homes. And that makes an awful lot of sense. Um, so it's time to look at some of these big, big problems so that when we do get something which is really, really serious, we're better prepared for it than we have been for this one. Wow. So how can people contact you henry um through through twitter at henry dodds h-e-n-r-y-d-o-d-d-s at henry dodds and um yeah i'm open for direct messaging as well until next time uh thank you once again henry thanks jonathan that was very very interesting and, and, and a great opportunity i appreciate it my pleasure and and to everybody else we'll see you soon speak to you then If you would like to contribute to a future programme, please email reinventatme.com. That's reinventatme.com.